Hey, Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry on the line here with the, the Skype call for the September issue of Risk Management Monthly. We have a great guest, Bob Durlett, who is recording with us from, honestly, goodness, I have a picture of him on my screen, in the woods, somewhere in the woods of Northern California. Bob has graciously taken some time out of his vacation to go to a local coffee shop to talk to us about a case that, and a paper that he wrote that was absolutely scary and fascinating. And when, and I agree with it so much that I really wanted to make the effort to get Bob on the line. Gregory, anything exciting in your life before we do this? Yeah, lots of stuff. But I think Bob's paper brings up an issue which, quite frankly, could be invoked on half the emergency medicine cases that I've worked on in my life. We were talking before the show started about the the Swiss and how uh, regulated they are and how they tend to do things efficiently, sort of like building Rolexes and that sort of thing. Their emergency medicine system sounds way ahead of ours in sort of, quote unquote, moving the meat. Believe me, Bob's points could be brought up at every major urban medical center in the United States every day. Would you agree with that, Bob? I, I sure would. Hallway care is bad. Yeah, hallway oh, yeah, care yeah, in general wait, is, let me, is let me bad. Write down here. <laughs> Bob well, is professor I hear this all the time. I hear this all the time in court. Well, we couldn't really examine them. They were in the hallway. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. You know what? We need to stop with excuses and start getting people into rooms. This is just this is just nuts. Bob is a professor emeritus of emergency medicine at UC Davis, has been writing a long time some really very provocative stuff in the medical literature. And this paper, I think, is over the top. It's entitled Emergency Department Crowding and Loss of Medical Licensure, A New Risk of Patient Care in Hallways. Bob, thanks very much for coming on and going through this with us. You're the head author on this. McNamara, Bob McNamara is number two. Antoine Kazi, who we all know is Number three, he's the head of the UR-ER at the American University of Beirut, and John Richards, who is also at UC Davis. There's a case here that we're going to ask Bob to go through, and the consequences of this are just frightening, but it really basically points out who is really responsible when a bad thing happens in the emergency department, which is grossly overextended. So, Bob, can you take us through this case? Yes, actually, in summarizing the physician was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think the importance of this uh, case is it could have happened to any of us had we been mandated to provide care in overcrowded uh, hallways. The case briefly is a, a gentleman who came into the emergency department, was never placed in a regular bed, never in a licensed bed, was always in the hallway, received his complete evaluation and care in the hallway. And two days after discharge, passed away from a pulmonary embolism. The case was settled. Actually, because of this, it was settled on behalf of the plaintiff. A report was sent to the uh, state licensing entity, and uh, they basically uh, took the physician to their judicial procedures and almost took the physician's license away. Based on what, Bob? So based on the fact that a uh, malpractice settlement and the state in which this occurred required any any, uh, malpractice settlement to be reported to the state licensing. That's frightening. I mean, I mean, because the case went down, 
does not mean that there was true negligence or certainly gross negligence of any kind for which they ought to take a physician's license. But you've pointed out something that sometimes we are at the wrong place at the wrong time. You and I have all been there when there are 10 patients coming in. There's going to be somebody who's seen 10th no matter what we do. And they do stack them up in the hallway sometimes, and we're dependent on the nursing staff and other people to try and sort this thing out as we're taking care of patients. Bob, in your paper, you noted that the ER was 250% over capacity and that everything took a long, long time. There were multiple other opportunities in this patient's care that, that might have been issues like, you know, interpretations of EKGs, pass, some pass-on related issues, which are, you know, becoming a, a, a favorite of the Joint Commission. But fundamentally, this place was out of control. And this poor doctor tried to take care of this patient in a hallway bed. And we all know what that is like in terms of privacy, getting clothes off. And just the fact that we cannot multitask through 10 patients and expect that occasionally something bad will happen. And this was one of the things that was bad. You also pointed out in your paper that the hospital really didn't come to the aid of this doctor. They basically said, you know, okay, uh, our our hands are washed to this. He was an employee of the hospital, so it wasn't one of these hospital versus a ER contracting group. So they wound up paying the money, which was, I think, a million dollars. But there are these other issues that relate to whether who's responsible here. And I think that that's been your focus. Who's the responsible party in a situation like this? It's not necessarily the doctor. I think the hospital administration is responsible for ensuring that emergency departments do not get out of control uh, and that patients are not placed in jeopardy. The hospital administration has the resources to make things better in the emergency department. I think most emergency departments nationally have done their best to improve triage, to improve internal efficiencies, get laboratory data back, try to get imaging quicker, to work the physicians harder, basically. But we can only do so much. And the hospital has the money bags that they can use to fix the problem. They have the power to fix the problem. As an example, in New York, Stony Brook has a model where if the emergency department is overcrowded with boarded inpatients, they're moved up to inpatient wards and are in the hallway upstairs to help clear out the emergency department. By the way, you know, when that took place in New York and Peter Vicellio, who's the name associated with this all the time, Peter said, actually, all they had to have was the threat because once they knew they could take them upstairs, all of a sudden the nursing staff upstairs found beds for their patients. This was a delay tactic And once they knew they had the power to move someone upstairs, all of a sudden things magically appeared. How does that happen? I have no idea. You know, in the abstracts, we just did a paper yesterday about the Kaiser Hospital in Sacramento where they showed when the administration really wanted it to happen, they basically declared a one-hour time frame from the time the patient is decided to be admitted, 30 minutes is allowed to the assignment of a bed. From that 30 minutes to the time the patient leaves the emergency department, another 30 minutes is allocated. So the goal is one hour from the call for a bed to the person leaves. They increased their 
the number of patients who met this one-hour guideline from 35% to about 60%. And they made the point that this was clearly a top-down process, that if the administration of the hospital did not want this to happen, it wasn't going to happen because they had done all they could internally to make, as you have said, Bob, the department as good as possible. But we don't work in a vacuum. And so at a Kaiser hospital, you can see that they have the muscle to get the medical staff to cooperate. At a community hospital, the CEO acts like the medical staff is doing them a favor by bringing their patients, and they are, in fact, the customers of the hospital. And I don't think that's the way necessarily Kaiser views it. And as a trickle down from that, they wound up getting their discharge patients out an hour sooner. Their, Their time for discharge turned out to be about three hours for discharge patients instead of about four hours. So that there were all kinds of other benefits, not only medical benefit of getting patients out of the ER, but the discharge patients, they also went through the system quicker. Ghazala Sharif also did a paper maybe in the last six months showing remarkable improvements at her system in, uh, it's in San Diego, whether it's the script system or not, I forget which one it was. But again, they had numbers that which were really impressive, which would not have occurred if the hospital administration did not embrace this. Bob, offline here, you mentioned that, you know, you believe in the many of these cases that the culprits are the administration and that they ought be named in these suits against these poor doctors who, you know, yeah, there was a mistake made. Yes, maybe the patient could have been, you know, more carefully examined. Absolutely. But in this environment that was they allowed to have happen, maybe they should be the ones who get sued. What do you think? Absolutely. I think they have the purse strings uh, and they have the power to empty the emergency department hallways to move patients upstairs. And in my discussing this issue with emergency physicians nationally, it is not uncommon for the hospital to focus on elective admissions, fill the beds upstairs, and let patients dwell in the emergency department in a chaotic and a environment that's very difficult to deliver good care. Greg, don't you think that this sounds like a a slam dunk kind of accusation when you go and look at the logbook and see how many patients they were being asked to see? Have you ever seen this used in a malpractice case? No, we don't see that. And, And the reason we don't is this is the plaintiff's view of the situation. Our patient came in. They paid full boat. You didn't give them a discount because the care was bad or they had to wait in the hallway. They don't care about any other patient. I, th- I think Bob is taking a, a different kind of view, which is much more of a view of, of being at 20,000 feet looking at the entire movement of the system. Whenever we see most malpractice cases that are litigated, It's as if there was one patient involved in that emergency department that entire day. The smart emergency doc, when things are really turning to crap, and we've all been there, I used to write on my chart, you know, that that we were in a disaster mode. Because if I ever had to go to defend any of that care, I was going to talk about the fact that this is the, the duress we were under at that time. Fortunately, I never had a case. But I think you do give out different care when you've got 15 people backed up than if you're, if you're seeing them sort of one at a time, fairly easy pace. I don't think there's any question that you and I have different, different speeds. We have warp speed when we need it, 
And uh, that isn't always the best thing for the patient. Well, uh, if you said that you were in disaster mode and I was the plaintiff's attorney, I would say, Dr. Henry, what is your hospital plan when you are in disaster mode? And, the and fact then I tell them. Yeah, there is no I usually, Well, I usually had to call people in and do the best we could. But you're right. The doctor only has so much control over any of that. It's interesting that having worked for a group where we signed a contract and said, if you're backed up, you have to call in another doctor. It was interesting. The hospital didn't have to call in any more nurses. They didn't have to call in any more techs. They didn't have to call in anybody else. It was as if the doctors coming in could solve the problem. And I think really most of these are system questions, which a doctor by himself or herself just can't solve. Bob, are you aware of any cases where this tact has been taken at all, no less, no less successfully? Gosh, I think, as I recall, I read in some uh, newsletter uh, of a physician in uh, the middle of the U.S. who uh, was in disaster mode but in the hospital emergency department and called the administrator on duty, was rebuffed to say, hey, we need help. We need to stop ambulances from coming in. We need more help. And then called the uh, CEO of that private hospital. And the consequence of that is ultimately the physician was terminated with the threat that the contract group would have their contract terminated if they didn't take action on this physician who was screaming for help. If I can turn back to the malpractice comments uh, made uh, earlier, I think the classic malpractice lawsuit is there's only one patient in the emergency department and the physician focuses the entire thinking process on that one patient. And I think that the plaintiffs are starting to get smarter and say, well, wait a minute, we have a higher likelihood of winning this lawsuit if we say the hospital is grossly negligent in not providing sufficient staff and physical plant space to make the emergency department operate smooth, to ensure a seamless throughput process, to do something like, like Kaiser did that you just mentioned. Yeah, Bob, I, you mentioned earlier that you'd been in Switzerland. What we're talking about here is demand management. How do you, in a, in a system which has an irregular flow of patients, how do you smooth it out? How do you get them in? What are other countries doing? What are the Swiss doing that we don't do to move patients upstairs. In the emergency department that I uh, visited, the idea was to keep the emergency department empty, like a fire department, ready to go for the true emergency. So it was like uh, patients in a way were like hot potatoes. I hate to use that uh, uh, analogy, but you got a patient and the goal was to either get them discharged home with follow-up with their private physician or admitted upstairs to an inpatient ward. There wasn't a lot of dwell time in the emergency department because they knew that the emergency department works most efficiently when it's least crowded. Absolutely the case. You know, we have a bunch of papers in the EMA database that, that points out that ICU patients held in the emergency department do worse from a medical point of view. It's not just a matter of time but there's a bunch of studies now that say these people do worse. Their outcomes are worse, and where their mortality is higher. It's not just about morbidity. It's more about mortality. And so that there's this growing database out there that any attorney could access. Here's four papers that talk about access block, not only in, in Australia, but in the States as well, and the clinical outcomes associated with not getting these people out of the department. We're talking about generally ICU patients. So 
it would seem that all of this mounts to making a pretty powerful case that your failure to develop a system to relieve these people are not only causing them inconvenience, but is causing them morbidity and mortality. And that it would be very difficult to take the position, well, we can't fix it. We can't fix it. You know, I think, and I've said it before, you just tag on some of these parameters to the ER, uh, the CEO's uh, bonuses, and these will be fixed uh, really very quickly. Well, let me ask you a, another question to both of you. There are places where certain business activities carry with them a criminal penalty. Should, should we charge people who are running healthcare institutions if they are grossly negligent? Should that be punishable by time in jail? Is it a criminal offense? Or are we just talking money here, Rick? Well, you know, that comes up with, the, you know, the, four, the, the case of GM and they had uh, the locks that uh, weren't working and the, the, they, were, they knew they weren't working for a long period of time. And they basically said, well, you know, there's 13, we'll just, we'll just, we'll pay the, we'll, we'll pay the fare. But the fact of the matter is, is that if a CEO knows about it and actively chooses to, to neglect this thing and takes the point of view of, well, we'll just pay the bill. You know, that doesn't seem that there would not be some culpability. You know, everybody was beating their chest about all of these financial institutions that, you know, lost bajillions of people's dollars and not one soul went to jail. It's like, was there no culpability here? Was there no gross negligence here? Is is this stealing allowed while the other stealing is not allowed kind of thing? I, I personally support Bob's point of view on this. 100%. I'm sure I'm not going to make any friends of any CEOs, but if you know that there's a problem and you've done nothing about it and you know that there is the likelihood of medical consequences to occur as a result of this, I think you need to pay the piper. Well, I, before we go any further, let me put in one disclaimer. Bob is professor emeritus. Certain people on the paper get salaries. I, I'm not advocating in this in this recording that everybody go reporting their CEO, particularly if if you're a contract at a place. There are some dangers, as Bob pointed out, with doing that. So we, we need to put this into some kind of perspective because I'm willing to bet that in a lot of hospitals in this country at night, you you have this situation going on. This is not unique in any way, shape, or form in the 40 years I've been in emergency medicine. Well, that's what's so cool about Bob's paper. He calls a spade a spade, and and it's very courageous. And I asked Bob off the air, you know, well, aren't you likely to get into trouble about this? I mean, this, this looks kind of nasty, and, you know, Bob... Bob's in a position where, you know, they, they really can't effectively come after him. But uh, I admire every one of these physicians who have their name on this paper because it's the only one I've ever seen that makes this assertion. And it seems to be so overwhelmingly a, a fair case to say this isn't that doctor's fault. This is, this is the system's fault, which was allowed to exist because the CEOs chose to allow it to exist. I think one thing I do want to point out in talking to emergency physicians nationally is uh, those that do complain through the normal channels many times get no action from that and get brushed off. And surprisingly, there's been some pushback from hospital administration to say the doctors are slow and lazy, which is just appalling when these physicians are working so hard with literally sweat dripping off their forehead to help people 
uh, and do not get the support they need from hospital administrations. You know, uh, in preparation for this call, I went onto the um, the web last night and put in emergency department malpractice. And what do you get as a well? There's a bunch of things, but one of the things that come up pretty frequently is law firms basically talking about their cases, and uh, they're really seeking out clients as they want to tell how people, you know, what we did and how successful we are. However, there's a couple of them here that I thought were kind of interesting. One of them is the headline is. Emergency room negligence and excess wait times. I mean, you know, you and I know that that is just a setup for disaster. And in fact, your patient, I think, had an excessive wait time in the case that you talked about, Bob. And I have another one here. $1.5 million settlement lawsuit brought against ER physicians and nurses when man suffered chest pain dies of aortic dissection. This guy was in the ER something like six hours before they made this diagnosis, despite the fact that when he came in, is admitting uh, his triage blood pressure was a 133 over 35. Huge pulse pressure number here. Nurses didn't think that this was anything. They put him on, ah, no, it's okay, kind of thing. When, when they repeated the number, it was 135 over 45, so it wasn't just a fluke. That was taken uh, you know, a couple of hours later. And so they, you see these timelines coming up of, oh, my God, this guy's a time bomb. And so 1.5 million. I'm surprised it was only 1.5 million. The guy died. Uh, here's Listen, while, while we're busy baying at the moon here. Baying at the moon? Come, yeah, we need to talk about what are some of the things we can do. I mean, it's a problem which all of us intrinsically understand happens. What are the things that are really effective in changing the outcome? I mean, we know about uh, several of the papers written of people who have improved their, their performance. But, I mean, is there something that we can be doing nationally as, as a group or individually at our hospitals that works? Because we have listeners. They want to take this back and do something with it. So give me some ideas. Bob, you're up. Physicians uh, in the emergency department need to, to approach the administration in positive light that they will benefit from an emergency department that's slick, in which their waiting times are minimal, in which the best care is provided. That's good PR. That's good PR for the community, good PR for the hospital. And it's, it falls on us as emergency physicians to convince hospital administration this is uh, in their benefit as a, I mean, why, are people, why do we have hospitals to help people? Exactly. You know, they right. have all of these moves now to uh, have billboards showing wait times. I mean, we're the only industry that has a billboard showing the wait times to get in, despite the fact we'll still charge you a thousand bucks for your hangnail. So yeah, I think that uh, taking the aggressive approach that uh, you're, you're going to get your ass sued if uh, we screw up because you, don't, you haven't taken any uh, efforts to uh, deal with our crowding issues is not going to work in most cases. But I do think that they are interested in PR. They are interested in, you know, getting uh, recognition. They are interested in, you know, increasing their, you know, most ERs are interested in increasing their, their, their number of patients, certainly not all. But I do think that if we go to them and say, listen, help us, help us with this. We want to do a better job for you because that's who we work for. We work for these CEOs, so we can't go attacking them. I mean, they, they, most of them can have us go at will. So, yeah, I think that we have to do the best we can within our departments. Uh, 
in terms of the systems that uh, are there. But I, I can tell you, if you don't have lab on your side, if you don't have radiology on your side, if you don't have housekeeping, there was an absolutely fabulous paper written by uh, Grant Innes, which published in the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, where he made it very clear that in the hospital, there is the job of the inpatient staff. And the job of the inpatient staff, one of those jobs, is to create beds for the emergency department. That that was an active part of their job. It was They, uh, they kind of knew, on average, how many patients are going to be admitted, and that their job was to make those beds available. That's not the perception in our hospitals where we have volunteer medical staff who basically can say, well, listen, if you're not mean to, if you're not nice to me, I'm going to go to the hospital down the street. You know, we, you need to move your patients out, those kinds of things. The UR nurses are kind of like the, the most, I have no idea why anybody would be a UR nurse. It's like working in the lost luggage department at the airlines. What the hell did you do <laughs> to get that job? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. No, exactly. Nobody is happy with the UR nurses. But, okay. Back to positive steps, uh, I just looked at the JCO website, and the JCO, as we know it in the old days, is now called the Joint Commission. And according to their website, which I'd encourage you to check out, uh, they actually have a, a new rule stating that inpatients who are in the emergency department should not be boarded more than four hours. And when the exact boarding process starts, I don't know. Uh, that's a first step. I wish that would have been one hour. And I think JCO needs to be more involved in the, I should say, the Joint Commission, more involved in the ER crowding issue than they have in the past. Absolutely. I, I, I agree f- uh, fully that this is a medical quality issue. We can show mortality-related issues in, in association with holding patients. You know, uh, we did an interview with uh, Bruce Fagel uh, about, I don't know, uh, nine months ago. Bruce is an ER doc who is among the most successful plaintiff attorneys in the state of California. I went onto his website. It just kind of popped up. Here's his headline. Overcrowded emergency rooms have become a major problem with hospitals, resulting in an increase in medical negligence and medical medical malpractice. Overcrowding has become a serious problem in hospital emergency departments. This, this causes patients who need immediate medical help to seek to sometimes wait hours for medical attention. No big surprise there, but this is all over the place. And so you can see the thrust of this being, you know, you're making patients wait. There are consequences. You haven't done anything about it. Bob, I think your paper is absolutely terrific. I admire you, the fact that you have were able to find three co-authors who, who are willing to put their names on this as well. You mentioned so. more papers like this. Uh, unfortunately, this, it, this same thing is happening throughout the, the country. But I think more emergency physicians need to stand up and say, we've had enough. This needs to stop. It's really tough because most of them, if you're not an employee, you're a contractor. And if you're a contractor, you are there at the at the uh, will of the CEO. And if they don't like the way you look, these contracts, they don't have any protection anymore. They're all basically at, at termination without cause you know, 30, 60, 90 days at most kind of thing. That They all favor the uh, emergency department management. Greg? Then we're getting to the corporate control of uh, emergency department, the corporate control of emergency department flow. That's awful. <laughs> Gregory, help us yes, out. Yes, sir. Help us out. Well, I, I think the bottom line is uh, everything else in the country has gotten better, really, in service industries 
And it's not that we're so much worse than they were before. This is as bad as it was 40 years ago or 45 years ago when I entered medicine. You would expect it would have gotten better over periods of time. And it really hasn't in a lot of places. It's not that it's worse than it was 20 years ago. It's not. That's just a big lie. But it's no better. And it should be better. That's the problem. It should be better. I'm not so sure it's not worse. So the ACA, we're talking about 33 million people being insured who weren't be insured before. They got insurance now. No primary care doctors are necessarily able to see them. I'm going to the ER. There, you know, the surveys have shown, at least anecdotally, that all the ERs, are their, their volumes are going up. And so how do you – and, you know, they're not all Blue Cross Blue Shield. Half those patients are going to be Medicaid patients. Yeah, by the way, you can make reasonable money on Medicaid patients. You under, Rick, you understand this finance as well as I do. Having not in Medicaid, California. Not in California, well, you can. Well, in, in a lot of states, you can. In Michigan, you can because we have high fixed costs, low variable costs. See more patients, you actually make more money. And uh, I'll, I'll say this. I think that uh, many years ago that, yes, uh, county hospitals and university hospitals did have uh, ED crowding, but... More recently, it's spread to uh, private hospitals, community hospitals, uh, suburban hospitals, rural hospitals. I remember once uh, working in a a rural hospital long ago, I would do 24-hour shifts. I would go to sleep at midnight, uh, and, you know, nobody waited to to receive care. They would wake me up, and I would uh, come take care of the patient. Even during the day, we did not have a triage nurse. If somebody came to the emergency department, they were immediately placed in a gurney. We always had an open gurney. This is the quote, fire department availability theory, that if you always have empty gurneys, patients don't wait, and they get good care. Bob, yeah, I think triage, triage has gone crazy in the country. Bob, you, you uh, made triage the should that, only be if you can't see them. Yeah. Go ahead, Rick. Bob, you made the point that the hospitals have the money to fix this, and we generally think that county hospitals don't really have a lot of money for, uh, to deal with these things. But was not UC Davis one of the most profitable hospitals in the UC system? I know it's profitable. I don't know the, the, the details and the comparison with the, with the other five medical campuses. Well, you know, I heard it was the most profitable of, of, the, of the hospital system uh, in the system. And it's not one of those things where you can just kind of make the assumption that, uh, well, we're, you know, we're a government hospital. We see the poor people. We don't have the resources to make this happen because I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Um, Bob, any last words? Uh, Yes, I think we need to continue to publicize this problem of hallway care and enlist as many people, including the public, to help solve this problem. Bob, I want to thank you very much for taking time out on your vacation. I've enjoyed watching the pine trees behind you. Uh, I, I understand that you're at a coffee shop. I want to thank the coffee shop, Starbucks, or whoever they are, for allowing you to hop on their uh, their Wi-Fi. Thanks very much. I very much appreciate it. You're doing this on short notice. We asked you to do this last night, and you never even were on Skype before. I want to thank my son, Ricky, for connecting you to Skype. And, you know, I hope that you find that it Skype is a fun thing to use in the future. Thank you, and I really want to thank your, your son who uh, walked an uh, old guy through uh, <laughs> modern computer technology and got me hooked up to Skype. Thanks very much, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Well, Rick, that was a, a great conversation with Bob, and, you know, uh, 
Every one of us have had those feelings while we're working in the department that the system is fundamentally wrong. And I, I still think it is a huge research problem in emergency medicine that we research a bunch of crap that makes no difference and nobody is doing any decent research on hospital staffing, who should see what, how they should move patients. You know, all of us would want to see those papers. I don't know why it's not being done. All right. You want to do some cases? Yeah, let's go. All right. Well, here's the problem. Last month we did cases and I basically raised your blood pressure made you start to cry and whimper and everything else. I think you'll like these cases better this month, okay? All right, well, well I'll be the judge. The, okay, you be the judge. Be the judge. Okay. I got the cuff uh, Case number one, failure to timely order an MRI for a veteran with acute onset of paraplegia. Now, let me set the scene. This is 2009, almost 2010, in Puerto Rico, at one of our VA hospitals. We have two big ones in Puerto Rico. A veteran comes in, and by the way, just to just to make sure you understand everything, he has atrial fib, it is on chronic anticoagulation. He has neck pain, and uh, now he can't move his legs, and he has tingling into his arms. Does this sound good to you, Rick? No, I probably uh, would see that he gets uh, sent to the fast track as quickly as possible. Fast track as quickly as possible. And what happened is somebody knew at least the anatomic area involved, but they shot a CT scan. Why? Well, they couldn't get an MRI that night. <laughs> they shot a C. You see, that's like the drunk who's looking for his keys under the street lamp. Now, he lost them over there someplace else, but it's dark over there. The the problem is they did a CT scan, which, of course, was read as negative. I wouldn't expect it to be read as anything else. They put him in the hospital, and it's now 48 hours till they finish all the paperwork and get an MRI approved, and now he can't move his arms or his legs. They operate on this patient, and, of course, as you might expect, they relieve the hematoma, but he got no function back. Now, this was sued under the Federal Tort Claims Act. This is the case of Carmen Martinez Lopez versus USA. It's a federal case. And the award in this case was $1,375,000. I'll tell you right now, I don't think that's enough. How can you possibly how can you possibly award that to somebody who can't move their arms and their legs for the rest of their life? I don't know. But the, the bottom line here is he came into an emergency department at this VA hospital. He did what he was told to do. I'm a veteran. This is where I'm supposed to get my care. I'm, I get my soapbox now for a minute, Rick. The country is screwed up. The VA care sucks. There's no reason why every veteran shouldn't just get a card. And if they want to go to the Mayo Clinic, we pay for it. If they want to go to USC, we pay for it. Why should we have hospitals where only our veterans go. Do they have some disease that's going to hurt the rest of us? I don't understand this the, because there are plenty of good hospitals in San Juan, Puerto Rico that could have handled this case. And I can't believe we forced them to get inferior care. Well, wait a minute. Before you start piling on, just because it's been uh, because of what happened in the VAs in Arizona and, this, and the like, there were people 
who uh, were very actually very proud of the primary care system of the VA with regards to their uh, fact that their VA uh, electronic medical record system allowed a, a veteran to be seen anywhere in the country and that in many ways the physicians who worked in the VA thought that it was not it was a surprisingly good system and in fact in many ways a model yes there were we found out that at least in some of them they were kind of cheating big time and there were problems for sure but i don't so think that you can really throw out the entire va system of care because the fact of the matter is is that the veterans need more than medical care. They need psychological care. They need a rehab care. They need co- coordination of care that we're not used to doing, frankly. The, you know, would you rather go for your rehab to Walter Reed Hospital where they do it all the time? Or would you rather go to Japip out here and, and go to their rehab? I, I think that there is, there is a difference. Uh, you know what? It, it, we, we could have a full hour debate on this, but I don't think that uh, that most of the active military after they've gotten through that initial phase of rehab arms legs whatever it is most of their medical problems can be handled in the rest of the system and the point is there it is should be system. their choice well but it is their choice if we gave them a card that said they could go to UCLA, do you think UCLA doesn't have doctors who understand psychological problems or anything else? I, I don't think that's right. The other thing is we pretend like we can solve a lot of those problems, and a lot of them nobody's any good at. But, okay, in any event, in this case, exactly, exactly why it took 48 hours to get an MRI on the area, you know, Sometimes the reason for malpractice suits is what, Rick? Well, look, I believe the most common reason is malpractice. Now, you know, all of the yeah. statistics say, well, we win, win most of those cases. But in many cases, the deck is stacked. The Yeah, because people did get harmed. And the question is, did, did was our behavior the result of that harm? This The, the medical ca- case here is really, really, really straightforward. You've got to order the proper test. You've got to order. And to have a person on warfarin, AFib, who basically comes in with uh, a headache and and problem moving their legs, I think a sixth grader could probably say, this is probably something in the brain, maybe bleeding. And absolutely, I think that you're culpable if you don't get the right test. Yeah. No, this is a problem. This is a big problem. Case number two, parents claim negligence and failure to diagnose a shunt malformation in a teenager leading to death. Oh. Now, if you if you didn't like the last case, you're going to hate this one. This kid, 13 years old, goes into the emergency room at a hospital, which will remain nameless because, you know, I've been told not to bash people. Uh, in any event, the medical facility knew they had records. This kid had his shunts placed when he was a year and a half of age. He has two of them. So what did they do? They did a CT scan looking for enlargement. They didn't see it. I don't care who you are. This kid is now lethargic. The parents are experienced parents. They say he's got a headache, which he never has. He's lethargic, which he never is. They said the CT is normal, and they sent him home. Okay. So two days later, he shows up again. Somebody else does a CT scan, and the... uh, and that one they're not sure about, 
But they send him home again, send him back to see his family doctor. Now there's a entered into the chart a discrepancy report of a shunt malformation, and nobody calls the parents. Oh, God. Nine days later, the kid arrests. Now, this is the damnedest case because we have, well, they should have called so-and-so. Did they go to their doctor? Yeah, they didn't want to go here. They didn't want to go there. And this, in a very tough venue in Florida, was a case, a no-cause case. There was no money awarded to the family in this case. As I read the facts of this case, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, he's got two shunts. He's, he's, he's uh, lethargic. Why wouldn't you just call the, the pediatric neurosurgeon? I mean, they're in a city in Florida. They have pediatric neurosurgeons. Why wouldn't you do that? I, I don't understand it. And at least from the details that they presented here, I can't believe this was a no cause against the family. Can't believe it. Well, you know, in, in the summaries that you're reading, the, I think aren't they often written by the, the attorney who represented the patients? They're not written by, you know, dispassionate, objective people who have gone through the record and say, yeah, here's the facts as best as we can determine from the records. Uh, so Rick, I, that, never, that never happens, but it's not just the plaintiff attorneys. Frequently, these are written by the winning attorneys. Mm-hmm. So, if, it, so. If, if, if it's a no cause, that's been written up by the defense attorney, not the plaintiff's attorney. So even when the defense attorney writes something up, it looks horribly screwed up and that this patient should have gotten uh, compensation. It, it, it just, it's just hard to conceive of. A dead kid, though, at least in California, is not worth anything. That's the kind of most cruel way to say it, but it's true. The elderly are not worth anything, and the children are not worth anything because neither of them are making any money. And you can't get a X million dollar, ten million dollar, twenty million dollar settlement with as with John Ritter because he was making lots of money. So you know it's it's really tough, but I but I think that this doesn't sound like justice was served to me on the face of it. What do you think? It's very it's a very bizarre case and. Again, is this a doctor fault or a system fault? To me, this is a kid who we know has a sh- has two shunts. They're not working. He's got a headache. Whether he's got a big hydrocephalus or not, I, I don't know why you wouldn't go right to the top of the tree with a kid like this uh, and and get the answer that you need. And then to have a discrepancy put into the chart and not followed up on, that's just, that's sheer negligence. I, I, but, I don't know what to say about that. In emergency medicine, we know about this issue of following up on discrepant readings and the necessity to have a pretty foolproof system to do it. Whether, in fact, this really occurred, this discrepant reading really occurred in the emergency department setting is another matter, because does the hospital have a mechanism for following up on discrepant readings? Well, exactly. So, I'm not saying the emergency doctor is at fault for that. Right. Right. But somebody's at fault for that, at least in my opinion, that why do a test that you that somebody pays for that they don't do something with the correct results of that test? It doesn't make much sense to me. Next case, just and if we've uh, got you going, we'll try another one now. A vascular injury to a leg not recognized in the emergency department, or at least according to plaintiffs. 
this was a this is a very interesting case because a kid had one of these barriers that they put up along the streets. Uh, he and his friends are horsing around. It fell over and hit his leg. They they'd put up a barrier for a parade or something on the street. Big metal frame thing came down, hit him on the leg. His friends pulled him around, grabbed his leg, took him to the emergency department, and there, what about a two-hour wait, the patient is seen by the medical assistant who is a PA. The patient is then seen, we think. Can't say for sure because all the reporting on the chart is by the PA. Then there's a, a physician who's involved, whose name is on the chart, must have seen the case because they charged the full amount. They oh, charged oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. That's the way to get to tell whether the physician saw them. And what they said was no fracture. So even though the, you know, the kid was given pain medicine, sent home, two days later taken to another hospital where a he was seen. Ho- a better hospital. Well, it's two days later, and of course he has a he has a pulseless limb, right? And and he had obviously a dislocation, which caused some sort of disruption of the popliteal artery. Attempts were made to save the leg, vascular wise, and it went nowhere. And so they had to do an AK amputation on this kid's leg. By the way, this is the art of lawyering. Before the jury came back, because of all the fighting, is did the parents bring him back soon enough, all this other sort of thing, nobody knew what the outcome was going to be. So they did. They ran a high-low, which, as you're aware, Rick, and I, I want to remind our listeners, high-lows are when each side says, no matter what they come back with as a number, the most the plaintiff, the defense has to pay is this. And they also put a low number in that says, even if they say the uh, doctors are completely free of blame, they have to pay a minimum. So there was a high low on this case. The jury came back and gave the family $5.2 million. The high low in this case was $1.5 million. So the defense actually, by striking a high low, did a, a brilliant legal maneuver and they did not pay as much money as the uh, jury thought this case was worth. Very interesting medical legal case. Yeah, you take your chances, you know. Are you feeling lucky, punk? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right, one more case, and this is one we should be aware of. I don't think people realize how much attention is being paid now to the prescriptions you're writing if they require a DEA number, everybody's watching. And I've got one now where the failure to properly evaluate a man during a Xanax detoxification, the, the man is sent from a clinic to a hospital. The hospital looks at him and says, you know, he's had a seizure. He's had this. He's had that. We need to send him to a hospital, another hospital, a psych hospital, a place with inpatient psychiatric services. They put him in an ambulance. They send him. The ambulance stops, you know, at a traffic light. He unhooks himself, bursts out the back of the ambulance, and walks into tra- uh, to traffic and is hit by a car. Well, at least they don't have to treat him anymore for his withdrawal because now he's dead. 
you know, when we when, when an emergency doc gets sued for this sort of thing, somebody's somebody said you're going to secure the transport. It doesn't have to be pretty, but it has to be safe. They don't get to escape. Now, exactly whose fault the escape is, how the emergency physician wrote up what should be the restraint mechanisms, all that sort of thing, was one of the debates in the case. But the ambulance company got dinged. The emergency physician did not. Well, so you know, it's an interesting you case. You don't know whether somebody is necessarily uh, suicidal. They don't necessarily broadcast that. And you find out at the last minute that they take actions that are consistent with suicide. I think one of the extensions of this is the idea of mandating that patients who are being transferred be always sent by ambulance. And well, we've talked and, about that in the past. Rick, he had altered mental status. And I, I, what I would say is, an altered mental status patient, you don't know what their behavior is going to be. And so, you know, proper securing of that patient and making sure there's some note about that. Obviously, the jury was convinced in this case that the emergency physicians or the physicians involved had taken adequate action. But uh, you're right. If you're going to transfer somebody, you better make sure that that's a safe transfer because this is uh, good. Safe transfers do not mean automatically transfers are occurring by ambulance. And uh, we have heard of the cases where people have been sent by car and the people have thought that that's improper and that therefore the hospital has a policy that if you're going to do an EMTALA-related transfer, all transfers will be done by ambulance. First of all, a lot of these transfers are really transfers to higher levels of service, but there's not necessarily a big urgency. You're sending a kid who needs a laceration repaired by a plastic surgeon who you don't have to a place that has higher level of service. That doesn't mean they cannot go in parents' car if the car, you know, if you think that that's medically indicated. We've talked about some of these hospitals that have knee-jerk policies. They go by ambulance at all times. Uh, and I think that's unfair because the patients are going to be expected to pay for those ambulances, and they're $1,000. You could go uh, in a stretch limousine with uh, Jennifer Lopez in the back with you, and it's not going to cost $1,000 for what you know the paper sheet that they give you and the oxygen that you don't need. Right, exactly. Why do they all need oxygen? No one's figured that out. All right, my last case for the day before I, uh, we, we head on to other topics is one which you're really not going to like. This has to do with a woman who dies from a narcotic cocktail overdose. The emergency physician is not only sued civilly for the death, but an action is brought against the prosecutor. He was, uh, the doctor involved in this case was criminally prosecuted regarding the death. And this had to do with the fact that she was a known, quote unquote, abuser of drugs She's in the healthcare system. You can look her up, you know, just like every, every state now has some system where you can find out who's been given prescriptions, that sort of thing. It was considered that, that it was, it was a reckless endangerment on the part of this physician. He's now serving six to 12 years in the state penitentiary. This had to do with giving drugs to a known druggie who then had saved up drugs, took a lot of them, and died. What do you think, Well, the, 
there is this thing about civil suits, malpractice suits, and criminal charges being applied. I remember at our hospital many, 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 many years ago, there was an anesthesiologist who was, I guess, supervising inadequately a number of anesthetists, and somebody had a very bad outcome. And yes, there was a successful lawsuit, but this but this per- person was also charged by the DA for manslaughter. And I don't recall the outcome, to tell you the truth. All I remember is this was a oh-my-God kind of thing because we really weren't aware that, that you could get double jeopardy. Now, wasn't there a case with the, the Michael Jackson where that cardiologist was sued medical malpractice and then got involved in some criminal aspects of this as well? Absolutely. He... He actually took the big ride on the on the criminal activity, and he was convicted. Now, the family's not happy with the small amount of time he was sentenced to, but uh, he was he was convicted of of uh, essentially a form of manslaughter, and 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 which was totally separate from the family's civil action against him. So uh, you're right about that, Rick. Uh, It can be a problem. I would only point out that all of us have been involved with patients who are multiple drug users. I'm not going to, I'm going to avoid using the term abusers, but to not look on such a patient and, and not to raise some issues, just remember this case. This is, this I think is uh, terrifying in many ways because we've all given somebody a prescription for pain medicine. And, you know, we knew that they probably were not the best of folks in many ways. And now all I can say is it's now coming down hard and you are going to get in trouble. I think you need to be aware that civil negligence, if it gets to be pretty egregious, can easily flop over into criminal negligence and, and criminal charges applied against you, which uh, your malpractice insurance is not going to help you out on one whit. Uh, let, me, let, let, me just, uh, let me just raise an issue here quickly. We've got a little time. There was a wonderful phrase used by Mark C. Rogers, who's a doc who does health policy. Very smart guy, very funny guy. He said the government gave us an unlimited health care expense budget and we exceeded it. <laughs> he said it, they couldn't have been easier for us to do things and we ruined the whole damn thing. He was right. Well, I was giving a talk in Milwaukee this past week. Somebody did raise the issue. Well, we have to do this. We have to do that because of lawsuits. I think we've got to get over this in the country. The actual number of times it's the ordering or not ordering of a test is almost never. You and I have talked on this show for years now about the fact it's system, it's organization, it's discharge, it's follow-up, but it's almost never the ordering of one test or another. And yet our colleagues, Rick, believe this stuff. They believe it helps them. You know, here's the message being sent out. It doesn't help you folks. Just take care of the patients, not order more tests. It's everybody wanted to blame the lawyers for the inconsistencies of the way we practice medicine. Now, we're no great friends of the of the plaintiff's bar, but they ain't the only problem here. And until we get to that, 
I don't know how we're going to change certain behavior. As I, I think I mentioned once on this show, within our own group, there was a five times difference in the ordering of CT scans between the physicians and no difference in the findings. Well, uh, in last year's EMA course, which I am hopeful many of you will attend this coming year, we had a talk on uh, variability. And uh, the folks from uh, oh, uh, women, Women's and Children, what is the name of that uh, hospital in Boston? Uh, something. Yeah, I'm the long work they had, right, Children's Hospital. Go ahead. No, actually, it wasn't. It's uh, the other hospital. It's... Um, but in any case, I'm oh, blocking Brigham and women, Brigham and women's. Yes, yes, thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. that. They did two papers looking at the behavior of their own medical staffs, looking at variability, and I really have a great deal of admiration for their courage in publishing these papers because it showed huge variability, huge variability in ordering, and one of the things that was consistent between these two papers and others that are similar is that it appears that the experience of the doctor is unrelated to their ordering practices. You would think the most experienced doctors would order less, not necessarily the case at all. They found no correlation between physician experience and ordering. And uh, a very discouraging paper that was we did about a month ago in the abstracts looked at one hospital and the utilization before and after the insertion of an electronic medical record CPOE system. And uh, they found that after the uh, CPOE system was installed, lab testing went up 77%, 77%. This is through order sets, which are generally concocted by committees. You push one button. And I was, I've been begging for this study to come out. It's only one hospital, but nobody would have ever guessed that 77% would be the number. And so here is the a hospital paying twice. They paid to install this electronic medical record system, and now the people who pay the bills basically are getting hit up with all of these tests, uh, requests for payments of lab tests. And, you know, it's very dis- difficult to dispute these tests, except the one I would like to dispute, and that was the one of your lady who works at your place who cut the tip of her finger off. Yes, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, that, you tell that story? Yes. It's no. just a quickie. Uh, Greg told me this lady got a $1,000 plus dollar bill. for You know this kind of cut where the, you chop out the tip of your finger and it's just kind of bleeding and you just have to try to put some epinephrine on it or stop the bleeding because there's nothing to sew back on kind of thing. And uh, they did that and they – Send her home and the bill, yes, wasn't it over $1,000, Greg? Yes, sir, it was. And, and there was a charge on there for uh, for the respiratory people had a charge. And I said, did they do a test of some kind? She said, well, I had a pulse ox taken. The pulse ox charge was $110. And I thought, oh, my God. If Here's a woman who didn't need it, young, healthy, no respiratory complaint, and they stuck it on the end. I hope they didn't stick it on the end of the bleeding finger. It'd be nice if they picked one that wasn't bleeding. But $110 for essentially putting a clothespin on your finger, that's unbelievable. Well, you know, I was hoping that this hospital would be part of a large system 
And then uh, you could look at how routinely this was being done and the bills being submitted to Medicare. And then you could be a whistleblower, Greg, and then you could be even richer than you already are by being oh a whistleblower in this case. That, that would just blow everybody's mind. So why don't we uh, – let, let me give you uh, one small commercial – for those of you who are interested in uh, medical malpractice and an expert witness, the Michigan College of Emergency Physicians, essentially Michigan ASEP, is putting a course on on November 24th in Lansing, Michigan, on being an expert witness, and I'm one of the faculty. So if you're interested in this as, a, as an activity or form of, of, uh, of work or an interest of yours, please uh, give us a call at 517-327-5700. That's the Michigan chapter office, and they'll be happy to sign you up. So there's commercial. And what day is that? The, November the 24th, 2014. Isn't that Thanksgiving? No, it's not Thanksgiving. Right? <laughs> They're not that dumb. Can we, yes. do some, can, we, can we do some wine? Yes, sir. Let's do wine. Okay. All right, we're, we're going to present a, an interesting problem. Australia, if you think we've been dry in Western United States, you ain't seen nothing yet. Australia has turned to, to dust, essentially. Eastern Australia is where most of the big names are in Australian wine, Penfolds and all that sort of thing. And they have been like dust. It's been a roller coaster there on their wine crops. They're turning to poo-poo. However... Western Australia is doing very well, and they've got some, some interesting wines. I want to point out just a couple simply because the Australians have such great names for things. You know, the beer down there that everyone drinks is Redback. That's named after a poisonous spider. And whenever I give a wine suggestion, obviously, we don't know what the inner rater reliability is here. It's just what we taste and we like. But there's a winery called Ad Hoc. A-D-H-O-C, and they've got a wine called Cruel Mistress Pinot Noir, which is terrific. Had it the other day, and it's going to be available to you at about 25 bucks a bottle. Oh, getting this, up there, Greg. And uh, this, competes, this competes fairly with the California wines, and it has a very interesting flavor. You know, I think when they centrifuge down there, Ricky, don't they go in the opposite direction? Yes, the, right. the, the Coriolis effect or something right. like that. Another one down there, which I had at a gathering, is Devil's Lair is the name of the winery. And it's Margaret River Chardonnay, the 2013, so it's young. And they want a lot of money for this one, Rick. They want 50 bucks a bottle. But the taste is terrific, and I could recommend it openly to anyone. So there's Wine of the Month. Okay, Greg, thanks very much. I know you got some uh, things that you're doing at some chapters coming up. I hope to see you at ASEP in October. We'll be talking before that. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye-bye.